Well, good morning, everybody. Christ is risen. Ah, I see David's warmed you up. It is wonderful to see you here today on Easter Sunday. If we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And we've got some, uh, we've got some very important stuff to talk about today, it being Easter and all. So we're just going to jump right in, okay? For the past three months, we've been walking through the story of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Luke. And today we come to the most important part of that story. So by way of a very brief summary, Jesus of Nazareth, hopefully you've heard of him. He's a very big deal around here. Uh, he is the beloved son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, the maker of space and time, stepping into space and time and living a fully human life. Now, he lives his first 30 years in relative obscurity. You know, he's not trying to be like a a teen Instagram influencer. He's not live streaming his temptation in the wilderness. He's not trying to be a big deal, which I've always found very interesting. Jesus didn't try to be a big deal, but Jesus was a big deal. And so when he takes his ministry public at 30 years old, things start happening. Some people are really, really drawn to Jesus. Now, to be specific, Jesus has this habit of attracting unattractive people. And maybe you've noticed that people who are prostitutes, vagrants, dropouts, sinners, women. Nowadays, we see a guy fought around by a bunch of women, and what do we think? Man, guy's got it going on. He must be a, a musician or maybe the leader of a cult, one of the two. That's what I always think. But it wasn't that way in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you were, you were followed around by a bunch of women, it was actually very uncool because women were considered second-class citizens. So it was not cool for Jesus to be followed around by a bunch of women. All that to say, unimportant, unrighteous, and unattractive people were uniquely attracted to Jesus. Now, on the flip side, some people were really, really repelled by Jesus. Right, to be specific, Jesus had this habit of repelling attractive people. Like, you know that, that, that uh, invisible, very potent, repulsive force you feel when you try to hold two oppositely charged magnets together and you just can't quite get them to touch? That's kind of how it was with Jesus and important people. So maybe you've noticed that every single time that Jesus encounters somebody who is rich or powerful or righteous or important, it doesn't go very well. Those showdowns never go very well. In fact, it goes so poorly that eventually all the important and rich and powerful people, they get together and they conspire to kill Jesus. That's what we talked about on Good Friday. Right? All that to say Jesus is a really big deal. And so people who think that they're a big deal have a very hard time with Jesus. So that brings us to our story this morning. Jesus of Nazareth is dead because all the important people killed him. And it's the saddest moment in the history of the world. But it's a moment that cannot and will not last. Because according to what I like to call uh, gospel physics, what goes down must do what? It must come up and 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 up. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Luke 23. we got a pretty good story this morning. We'll start out in verse 50. We'll read into chapter 24 a little bit. And it'll be on here on the screen as well for you, Luke 23, start out here in verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. 
He took it down, down from the cross, wrapped it in a linen cloth, laid him in a tomb cut to the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now, the women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned, prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. Now, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly appeared. They stood before them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and he ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. So Jesus is dead and his followers are crushed and all the important people are high-fiving each other because once again they have won. And then in one of the more poignant moments you'll ever come across, this group of deeply disappointed women come to Jesus' tomb. Because even though he's failed them, failed to live up to their expectations of him, they still want to honor him and his broken body. And so they come to this tomb prepped for a funeral, right? But then all of a sudden, all hell, or better yet, all heaven breaks loose on them. They show up with all this funeral paraphernalia in their arms, and they're shocked to discover that the stone, this enormous stone guarding the tomb, it has been rolled away. It's very strange. So they they tiptoe, probably cautiously inside. They begin to look around, and they see that Jesus' body is gone. This tomb is empty. And at that point, they probably start arguing amongst themselves, don't you think? They're looking around like, I swear this is the tomb. Like, Mary, I told you to drop a pin in this location. Our husbands are never going to let us hear the end of failing to stop and ask for directions. So they are arguing amongst themselves. And as they're arguing, these two angels just, bam, appear out of nowhere, out of thin air, and the women are terrified because that's what you do in the Bible when you encounter an angel. You don't walk up to it and try to snuggle. No, you pee your pants and you beg for your life. That's what you do when you encounter an angel in the Bible because angels are awesome, formidable creatures. And so the women, they're freaking out, right? And then the men, the angels, they speak out and they say this. I love this. They say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He ain't here. That's Austin's translation. He ain't here. He's risen. You know better than be looking for him here. And then the story gets really Really, really interesting, right? Because they run to tell the male apostles, the 11 male apostles, and we're told that these apostles do not and cannot believe them. As we're told in verse 11, these words seemed, I love this phrase, like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe them. And I'm going to jump in here, and I'm going, to, I'm going to defend the apostles a bit because I feel like they get a bit of a bad rap here. Because some people tend to think that this right here, 
is like a, a blatant case of misogyny. When these men refused to believe the women because women were considered unreliable witnesses in the ancient world. And of course, it is generally true that women were considered unreliable witnesses in the ancient world. But blaming the entirety of the apostles' unbelief on misogyny ignores the rather consequential fact that these women have just hung out with two angels and the two men have not. Right? And don't you think that would make a difference if, if you had hung out with an angel and you had not hung out with an angel? You'd probably see things a little bit differently, right? Like if my wife were to have breakfast with an angel one morning besides me, a real angel, okay? And, and, and she were to tell me about it when I got back home. Austin, you won't believe it. I had breakfast with an angel. I am not being a misogynist if I, having not been at breakfast with the angel, have a few questions, right? Wouldn't you have a few questions? Questions like, are you okay? How many mimosas were involved with this breakfast with the angel? Hmm, hmm, hmm. All that to say, I don't think that the men didn't believe the women simply because they were women. I think they didn't believe the women because it was some pretty unbelievable stuff the women were telling them. I think they thought it was pure nonsense because it sounded like pure nonsense. A dead man raised from the dead. Dead men don't get raised from the dead men. That's what makes them dead, right? And so here's where the story gets even more interesting. So I want you to think about something, okay? Rhetorical. I want you to think about this. What do you think that it would take for you to come to a place of perfect, doubtless, indestructible faith. What would it take for you to get to a place of perfect, doubtless, indestructible faith? Because if we're being honest, and we pride ourselves on being honest about this here at the Vista, none of us here today have perfect faith. Nobody does. And maybe that's, that's weird for you to hear, but I, I'll say it again. I'll speak for myself here. I do not have perfect faith. I mean, y'all, the Dallas Cowboys, right? God's chosen team, team I was raised to cheer for, team I will raise my children to cheer for, train a child up in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he shall not depart from it. The Dallas Cowboys have not been to a Super Bowl in 25 years. How many of you in here, you are under 25 years old? Let me see a show of hands. If you are under 25, raise your hand. You all have grown up in the world where the Cowboys have always sucked, okay? And y'all, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, it makes it very hard for me to believe in God. It does. So I got my reasons, and you got your reasons, and none of us have perfect faith. And so what do you think that it would take for you to come to a place of perfect faith? Well, I'll tell you what I used to think it would take for me to get to a place of perfect faith. I used to think that if I could just get, you know, like... Five minutes with J.C. I don't even need the whole day. I'm not greedy. Five minutes with J.C. And, and all my doubts would go away and everything would be okay. And I would follow Jesus with perfect faith for the rest of my life. That or the Cowboys Super Bowl. Either one of them would do just fine. And I'd be willing to bet you're kind of in the same place. You think to yourself, man, if I could just like see Jesus, hang out with Jesus, talk with Jesus, then, then all my doubts would go away and I would follow him with perfect faith for the rest of my life. But here's the thing. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. If, if I got five minutes with Jesus and you got five minutes with Jesus, our doubts wouldn't just magically disappear. And we wouldn't follow Jesus with perfect faith for the rest of our lives. And do you know how I know this? Because the Bible tells me so. Ah, oh, yes, indeed. Because later on in Luke's gospel, the resurrected Jesus, he does in fact appear to the apostles and they hang out with him. They eat fish tacos on the beach. Can you imagine that? Just hanging out with Jesus, eating fish tacos with him. And yet they still struggle to believe. Right? Luke 24, verses 36 through 41. It says, while they were telling these things, 
Jesus himself stood in their midst. And he said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they were seeing a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, hey, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it's me, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and they still could not believe it. Because of their joy and amazement. Now, let's make sure that we understand what the Bible has just told us. Resurrected Jesus is standing right there in front of the apostles. They they hold his hands. They touch his feet. Maybe they don't touch his feet. Maybe they're like, feet are okay. I'll see the hands. And yet they still cannot believe it. And why can't they believe? Do they need more evidence? Have they not read their Bibles closely enough? Do they have some questions about the logistics of getting all those animals onto Noah's Ark? You know, is that what it is? No, rather than any of those things, what Luke tells us is that they cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even as the resurrected Jesus Christ stands right in front of them, and I quote, because of their joy. That's why they can't believe. Have you ever had something happen that was just like so unbelievably awesome that you just literally could not get yourself to believe it. Ever had something like that happen? So, for example, um, we have uh, our first two kiddos are very, let's call it rambunctious little boys. For frame of reference, my my oldest son got caught a few weeks ago sneaking a, a rubber knife into Vista Kids and shanking Dave's son with it during worship. Two pastor's kids in the back. Everybody else is, praise the Lord, shaking each other with rubber knives. That's what we're dealing with in the Fisher household. So when my wife asked me if I wanted to have a a third child, I was a bit apprehensive because I knew we would have another insane little boy. And I knew my life would be over. And I don't want my life to be over. I'm over 35. There's a lot of stuff I still want to do. But eventually I I gave in, as happens in all good marriages. And uh, we had a kid. And so we go to do the gender reveal. You know, you got to do these big gender reveals nowadays or else your kids will grow up thinking they weren't loved. You know, so... So we're doing this gender reveal where I hit golf ball. It's a golf ball that's filled with either blue or pink dust. Blue for a boy, pink for a girl, right? So I go back and I hit that golf ball and it explodes into a cloud of pink. I literally could not believe that we were going to have a baby girl after these two insane little boys. It took me, I had to hold my baby girl for myself and see for myself and go, okay, it turns out the science was correct and we are in fact having a little girl. And as odd as it might initially sound, that's what the Bible tells us about the apostles. They could not believe in the resurrection, not because they had doubts and questions. No, they could not believe because it was just too good to be true. Y'all, as the resurrected Christ stands before them. They look into his eyes. This this tsunami of joy comes crashing into their hearts, and the joy is so intense, it's so enormous, that they literally cannot get themselves to believe it, which brings us to a really, really interesting thought. Namely, if you find the resurrection, like, really easy to believe in, then there's a good chance that you don't understand it, right? You see how that works? If you find the resurrection really, really easy to believe in, then there's a really good chance that you don't understand it. And so let's explore this a little bit. Because it certainly seems like we, and by we I mean, you know, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, that we have become so desensitized to the outrageous joy of the resurrection 
that we have forgotten that the resurrection is not supposed to be easy to believe in. It's not supposed to be easy. I mean, y'all, do you know what we are claiming to believe in when we claim to believe in the resurrection? I know a lot of us, we just showed up for Easter Sunday, we're ready for the Easter egg hunt and the mimosas, but let's just pause for one second and remember what we are claiming to believe in when we claim to believe in the resurrection. We are claiming to believe that even though humans commit unspeakable sins, every single one of you either has or you would have committed something unspeakable had you been given the chance. And even though our lives are filled with unimaginable suffering, and even though every single human in the history of the world has died and stayed dead, and even though sin, suffering, and death so clearly appear to have the last word on everything and everybody, despite all of that, God, our Father, defeated sin, suffering, and death once and for all when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We are claiming to believe that things will not simply turn out okay, not too bad, better than I might have expected, but that our destiny is eternal and infinite joy. Like, think about the happiest moment of your life, right? Could be the best concert you've ever been to, best night with your best friends, perfect sunset. Could be a wedding, birth of your child, your child leaving for college, whatever it is. The resurrection means that even the happiest moment of your life will be the saddest moment of your resurrected and eternal life. That the future that God has in store for us is one in which we go up and up and up and up forever and ever and ever and ever. It's like, it's like you're riding a jet ski while ridding the world of poverty, while having the best, you know, whatever your life with your spouse, while watching the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Or maybe that's just me, but you get the point. My boys, they're getting to the age where they're asking questions now about, like, uh, what happens after you die, life after death, stuff like that. And even though I, I literally explain this stuff for a living, I really struggle answering their questions a lot of time. And so when they first started asking me about, you know, the resurrection and life after death, I, I tried to explain it to them in a way that made it seem as obvious and believable as possible. Because I wanted them to believe it. You know, so I would very matter-of-factly explain that we're sinners who deserve death, but because of Jesus, we can be with God forever. And that should just, like, that should just make sense to them. You know, it should be obviously obvious, and it should just make sense because it's a simple theological math equation. Two plus two equals four. God raised Jesus from the dead. Duh, it should just be obvious and make sense to you. Right? And so one night, I finished putting the boys to bed. This is fairly recently. I explained this all to them again. And when I finish, I ask them if it makes sense to them. They kind of shrug their shoulders and nod nonchalantly as if to say, like, yeah, duh, that we get it. God raised Jesus from the dead, two plus two equals four. Good here. And so as I'm in the, the process of patting myself on the back, you know, for another job well done, um, this feeling of horror just, just comes over me, like down in my spine. I feel this little tingle of horror. And it was as if God said to me, Austin, why are you teaching your little boys that the resurrection is easy to believe in? Why are you teaching your little boys that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is some sort of easily believable and obviously obvious theological math equation, two plus two equals four? Because are you kidding me? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most unbelievable event in the history of the world. And so you better start acting like it, and you better start explaining it to your little boys in a way that leaves them shocked, stupefied, stuttering, jumping for joy, but not nodding nonchalantly because there ain't nothing nonchalant about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most non-nonchalant thing that has ever happened. And ever since then, y'all, 
I, I, I no longer try to make the resurrection seem obvious and easily believable to my kids. But instead, I go out of my way to make it every bit as unbelievable as it really is. Just the other day, my oldest son was sitting in the back seat, and he asked me if there would be dinosaurs in heaven. It's the most common theological question I get currently in my household. I could tell some of you have been asked it. It's a tough one. And, and normally, you know, I would have kind of, you know, rolled my eyes and redirected his question and tried to teach him some very matter-of-fact lesson about heaven's really about being with God. Two plus two equals four. But I did something different this time. So my son asked me, Dad, will there be dinosaurs in heaven? I paused for a second. I said, you know what? Yeah, there will be. He perked up a little bit. There will? Oh, yeah, man. Not only will there be dinosaurs in heaven, but you will have your own personal T-Rex that you can ride whenever you want. My own personal T-Rex? Oh, yeah, man. And this T-Rex, he's got wings, and he can fly. T-Rex with wings, they can't fly. This one can, man. And not only can he fly, but he can, he can breathe fire like a dragon. But instead of burning people in this gruesome pile of ashes, this fire, it just tickles people. And they love it. And at this point, he's in the back seat, and he's losing his mind. My own personal T-Rex who can fly and breathe fire like a dragon. And it tickles people, and they love it. He's just losing his mind in the back. When he finally chills out 30 minutes later, he, he looks at me, you know, in the little, little uh, look back mirror there, and he says, Daddy, that kind of sounds like a fairy tale. <laughs> Sharp one, nothing gets past him. And, you know, we'll have a few details to iron out in the future. His poor Vista Kids teacher so will be like, My dad told me I would get a T Rex that flies and breathes fire that tickles people. We'll have some details to iron out in the future. I'm well aware. But I tend to think that that was the first time that my son really started to understand the resurrection. Because it was the first time that he understood that the resurrection was the promise of something so outrageously good and joyful that it's supposed to seem too good to be true. Because the resurrection is supposed to be almost unbelievable. Not quite, but almost unbelievable. So let's end with this. Some of us in here today have lots of faith. Some of us got a little. Some of us got none. But regardless whether or not you got a lot, a little, or none to speak of, I hope that what we have talked about this morning has sounded like some nonsense to you. Some outrageous, joyful nonsense. Because while there is more to Christianity than joy... You can't make Christianity too joyful. Because while we were yet sinners, Jesus the Messiah took all our sin, all our shame, all our suffering, all of our death upon himself. He took it down into the grave, down to the very bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And then there, at the very bottom of the bottom of the bottom, God, our Father, raised Jesus, his Son, from the dead, conquering sin, suffering, and death forever and ever, and inviting all creation, you and me and all creation, on a journey that goes up and up and up and up forever and ever and ever and ever. And so rather than trying to convince anybody or prove something this morning, what I want to do instead is just invite all of us to do something that's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. I'm going to invite us all to let go. That's hard. Let go of the fear, the anxiety, the caution, the soberly clinical restraint. And dare, okay, if only for a moment, if only for a moment on this Easter morning in 2021, to let the joy of the resurrection have its way in your heart, 
your mind, your soul, and your body. Let go of control so that the joy of Easter can have its way with you. See what happens. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this beautiful Easter morning. We thank you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, your son, our Lord, took all of our sin. There's a lot of sin in this room this morning. All of our shame. There's a lot of shame in the room this morning. All of our suffering. There's a lot of suffering. All of our deaths upon himself, down into the grave, down to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, but then there at the bottom of the bottom, you decided you were going to get the last word. And you raised Jesus, your son, up from that tomb, conquering sin, suffering, and death once and for all, and inviting us to be a part of this journey that goes up and up and up forever and ever and ever. I pray that this morning, no matter how much faith we have or don't have in the room this morning, that you would just create some room for the joy of the resurrection to be let loose in our hearts And we'll just say yes to it and see where it goes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.